It's time, it's time for an all-new episode of View the Right Thing. On this episode, Wes and Steve start things off with a revolution of love with 1965's Dr. Zhivago. She's in Uriatin. Uriatin? The private life is dead for a man with any manhood. Then things get out of control with the tale of youth run amok in Matt Dillon's screen debut in Over the Edge. Uh-oh. That stuff I took. Supposed to be speed, but I think it was acid. I'm flashy. Really? And now, and now, live from an undisclosed location in Greater Los Angeles, California, this is View the Right Thing. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hey, welcome back to another episode of. He's smiling. Indiana Jaws. You the right thing. Oh yeah, we decided to change it for should, Labor Day. You should have seen the grin on his face when I when I gestured for him to uh, say the title of our show. I'm pretty sure I said "View the Right Thing" just now, I don't, four seconds ago. Roll that tape back. Uh, yeah, I heard it. No, I heard I it. I don't think that was right. So uh, it's been a couple weeks. Has it? It has. It's been. We we've had a lot of um, a lot of activity over the last like week or so. Yeah, we've had a lot of new Facebook likes. Getting if you're a lot of likes. Listening to us um, and have not checked out the Facebook page, um, you can check out the No Lag Till Brooklyn Facebook page and give us a like. That'd be nice. Um, Getting some correspondence. People trying to tell us how to run our show. No, that's not really true. I was gonna say, did that happen? No. If it did, I've forgotten about it. But I don't think it happened. I don't think it happened. Um, but you know we got HW pantaloons and fillery mm-hmm. out there, mm-hmm. and they like to be like, "You should watch this. You should watch that." And we are going to watch a movie that fillery suggested at some point when it gets thrown out of the bucket. That's right. Uh, pantaloons hasn't uh, suggested movies for us to watch, have they? If she has, it might have been in direct text form. She's oh. got my private number. And oh, she's, well, she's like my little sister, so oh, she like, might just text like me and be like, "Like your little sister, or actually your sister?" She's unofficially my little sister. Unofficially, your little I was sister. her big brother's best man. So, and I drove her to college most of the time. No DNA connection. I mean, we're both heavy Irish descent. I mean, you're both human beings, so we're both human beings. There's probably a DNA connection, but not parental or even grandparental. Gotcha. You get it. I gotcha. So, in the last couple of weeks, have you uh, have you seen any movies recently? Yes. What'd you see? Last night, mm. I went to see a movie called Blood Sucking Bastards. Oh, yeah. How was that? It was very funny. I liked it a lot. Um, I like movies that incorporate a lot of improvisation among mm. the cast, and it felt like there was plenty of that. Yeah. Uh, but maybe they just wrote it in a way that's so, f- so very uh, pointed, right, at exactly what I like. So... But it was very funny. It was very bloody. Okay. Pretty gory. It was pretty scary. Oh, okay. That's good. Um, yeah, some good thrills and chills and even a few spills. Some good spills. Yeah. I, yeah, I heard some Ooh. Some people howling outside. And then um, also a couple days ago. Oh, yes. Uh, when was this? It doesn't matter. I saw San Andreas. Oh, yeah. the uh, Over at the $3 the theater. Earthquake film. What do yes. you think of that earthquake film? Uh, we're talking about Dwayne the Rock Johnson versus an earthquake, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. Well, a series of earthquakes. When I had uh, Carla, G- G- Carla, G- G- 
Cugina or Cugina? Uh, okay. Carla C. I always think it's like Gigina, but I guess it's Is a it C. a G? No, I have no idea. I always feel like it's a C. Cugina. Hey, the mom from Spy Kids. The mom from Spy Kids, the female lead in Son-in-Law mm-hmm. with Pauly Shore. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, she's done so very much. I got to bump into her on the set of Entourage years ago. Ooh, fancy. Let me tell you something. If you think she's attractive on screen, yeah, in person, yeah, times a hundred, man. Yeah, like I was just like, oh, that's Carla Cugina, or possibly Cugina. Um, so the movie itself was certainly entertaining. Uh I mean, you know, it, it was a bit terrifying living in Los Angeles and the whole, pretty much, what are we, five miles from the San Andreas Fault right here? I think. I think we're I think we're really close to a, a chunk you know a good a good piece of the uh, of the line of the San Andreas Fault yeah so that's terrifying um, and so this movie you know it was just earthquakes from like out in Nevada and then they made a big curve all the way up to San Francisco mm-hmm. and they shook the heck out of everybody yeah and it was scary yeah but it was mostly just thrilling and funny and fun yeah and not always funny on purpose. Sure, but uh, it was a blast. I like the I like the British kid that was in it. British kid was okay. He was little uh, recon from uh, Game of Thrones, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, I meant I meant well, I meant the older British kid. But yeah, the older British both, brother. Both, both British kids were yeah. great in it. I really liked Alexandra Daddario, but who didn't? Uh, is that the daughter? <clears throat> yeah, I believe so. And then you got uh, I thought Jan Griffith was was uh, well cast as what was it Philip. The stepdad, yeah, I guess you could say. And then um, one thing that really irked me was the very beginning uh, stunt when they the uh, with the helicopter rescue on the side of a cliff in the San Fernando Valley. Yeah, when they say we're going to have to tip the hat, and they basically take the helicopter under a big piece of overhanging rock. I don't know exactly what you'd call that. Yeah. Uh, They just kind of like thread the needle through the crevice, but sideways. Right, but then they hover underneath a rock. And I don't know if that... I don't know if any helicopter pilot would ever think that that's safe to do. Yeah, yeah. Vamp a little. It was crazy. Oh, I'll vamp all you want. So... Let's give you just a taste of what we're about to talk about today on Indiana Jaws. All right, Wes is out of the room. I can say whatever I want. Um, San Andreas, it's the rock versus an earthquake. What else do you need? Blood-sucking bastards, check for it in theaters near you. It's very funny. It's very bloody. It's a little scary. You know what I liked about It's San very sexy. What? I liked the, under- oh, back. the underwater stuff. Yeah, the underwater stuff was real cool. Man, that boat race... You know what I'm talking yeah. about. That was insane. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. I'm not going to say much about the boat race. My guess is, I mean, the movie's been out for a couple months right. now. So either you've seen it or you're not going to see it. But if you might see it, go see it. Maybe it's about HBO. To it's, that's perfect HBO fodder right there. Yeah, really good. Just like, oh, look what's on. And just kind of yeah. leave it chill. Go about your day. Check in with it every few minutes. Right. Yeah. Um, what about you? Have you been to see any movies recently? Man, yeah. I feel like I have. Um, I feel like I saw something recently, and I can't remember what it is. Um, so I'll I'll move to the one that I saw last night. Yeah. Saw a movie again. Oh. For the millionth time. Right. I went to the Hollywood Bowl. For Bring It On. Not for Bring It On. Oh. Um, 
Go Toros. For Glitter. You saw Glitter with no, Mariah Carey, no? No. It was uh, my favorite movie of all time. Oh, I know what that is. Yep. Should I say it? Yeah, go for it. That would be E.T., the extraterrestrial. That is correct. Aww. And uh, so they did, it was, uh, this weekend was the world premiere weekend. I think they might be taking this on tour or something. I don't know. Whoa. Um, but uh, because they built, built it as the world premiere weekend for this thing. So, okay. Um, it was E.T. live in concert. So uh, they played the movie on a bunch of screens. Nice. Um, and they had the L.A. Philharmonic um, Orchestra play the entire score wow the entire film so it's really cool um it's interesting how how much you notice sound effects when they've removed the light or the recorded score from it yeah um especially keys all right the character of keys you hear his you hear his keys jingle a lot more um with that recorded soundtrack out of it it's really wild yeah um Really great experience. I'm I'm really happy that we did it. Sounds pretty awesome. My favorite movie. Uh, I definitely I definitely got teary eyed. Oh, every time I watch that, movie, it's a teary eyed movie, man. Yeah, for sure. And there's they they did it. They did an intermission, which um, I wasn't sure that they would do one, but uh, they did this like kind of really cool thing where um, spoilers for ET. Um, it's 34 years old, yeah, folks. <laughs> when uh, when Elliot takes ET out to build the device, yeah. And then he wakes up. It's at, at Halloween, <clears throat> and he wakes up and ET's gone, mm. and he's and, he, and Elliot's sick, and so he goes home and tells Michael to go. Um, oh, actually, I was going to tell you the intermission. I, I launched into a completely different story. Oh, that I, I will get back to that in a second. So the intermission was uh, them going out to Halloween. Yes, and they were going to go build this device, and and they they meet up with Gertie. Right, and uh, Elliot takes puts ET in the uh, bike. And they start going, and all of a sudden they like lose control. Right, e- ET actually has control, and they do the whole flying thing across the moon. Yeah, that whole like sequence of that amazing music was the build up, and then just like they crash land, and then it cuts to black. Oh wow! It was awesome. It was really really great. It that was is like, great. The perfect way to like leave people wanting more. Sure. Um, That's cool that they took an intermission. Yeah, when they came back, I think they kind of need to for the orchestra, but... Um, I agree. They came back from intermission um, and they played a sequence of music with nothing on the screen. They oh, actually yeah? They actually did some shots of the orchestra playing. And, oh. And uh, it was like kind of that sort of slower, ominous kind of music from E.T. I can't... I can't... It's got some harps it. and some, okay. some French horn... Uh, it's got some of the the uh, the darker themes going on, you know that yeah. the FBI stuff. It's letting you know Peter Coyote's on the way. Yeah, um, and the uh, and then it just like like the music just turned into the scene. Oh, that nice. was happening, and the, it just like the the, the movie came back. And, oh, that's so cool. Yeah, it was really neat. But uh, so I was talking about the um, scene where where Elliot wakes up and finds ET missing. Yes, um, that actually was something I noticed. Uh, we either we saw the movie with you know I don't know how many thousands of people were at the Hollywood Bowl, sure, but that place was packed, and uh, and we were watching the movie. You could tell people who either had never seen the movie before, oh yeah, and people who um, hadn't seen the movie in a really long time, okay. And and the best moment for that was when Ellie gets sick, he can't find ET, he goes home and he tells Michael, "You have to go find him. He's out there and he's yeah. sick." And so Michael goes out, and um, he evades the, the the FBI guys. Right on his BMX. On his on his BMX, 
and then he finds E.T. in the ravine. Right. And they, the camera, like, cuts down into, like, moves down. I can't remember if it moves down or if it cuts down, cuts to right. it directly. But uh, you see E.T. just, like, white. Right. And, like, sickly, kind of, like, laying in the river dying. Yeah, and it looks all crusty. reaction from the audience, who clearly had either forgotten what he, what, how that looks, or people that had saw it for the first time, it was, like, it was... An amazing experience to just nice. kind of feel that that audible gasp from everyone. That's so, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. It was, and I mean, like people next to us were crying. People in front of us were crying. It was just, it's, it's uh, such a such an iconic film. Yeah, so relatable. And um, I love ET, man. I watched it last summer at one of those outdoor screenings. Yeah, and it felt like it might have been the first time I've really seen it in one sitting the whole way through. Maybe since my family got it on VHS when right. I was about seven years old. Yeah, the comedy in that movie is so well timed. Yeah, the there's a lot of stuff. Funny. The the whole scene where he's watching the movie and uh, Elliot's at school freeing the frogs. Yeah, but what he's what watching is... the Quiet Man with uh, okay. with John Wayne and uh, and there's a scene where El- Elliot's like freeing all the liberating all of the frogs and the Quiet Man's going on and there's this conversation between a man and a woman. And it's windy, and she's trying to right. leave, and he grabs her and pulls her back, and Elliot grabs the little girl and pulls Playboy her back. Playboy playmate Erica Leniak. She, she, she turned into she, a playmate when she, she got grew up to be, yeah. Interesting. And uh, Baywatch uh, star for a couple seasons. Oh, all right. I'm pretty sure. I could be yeah. totally wrong about that, this. It's one of my favorite moments, that sequence. Um, I love it. Yeah. And the frogs get freed, which is nice. Um, keep talking, Wes. I'm I'm looking something up real quick. Yeah, no problem. Should we? Um, well, yes. Do you want to? Do you want to jump into? Uh, I feel like we should. We have a lot to talk about. So, we watched, so very much. We watched um, Doctor Zhivago, which was three hours and like fifteen minutes. Three hours and fifteen minutes of Doctor Zhivago, starring Omar Sharif and Julie Christie and yeah. Rod Steiger, whom I did not recognize. And Geraldine Chaplin, who I never Geraldine Chaplin. Yeah, she was great in this um, when she shows up in that pink, pink outfit. Oh yeah, that was yeah. adorable. Yeah, it was With adorable. The big, like the biggest, furriest, pink, fuzzy hat you could ever imagine in your life. I hope it never. I hope they never make a bigger, furrier, fuzzy pink hat than that. Yeah, that's what I'm. That's what I'm laying down right now. Fair enough. So uh, we also watched Over the Edge. Yeah. We, we did all this. We're doing all this all in one day this time. Yeah. Which is rare for us. Today is a View the Right Thing marathon day. Yeah. So now we're recording and uh, we should jump into uh, Dr. Zhivago. Dr. Zhivago. We're going to try something a little bit different this time. Yes. We are going to uh, read the synopsis from Wikipedia. Right. And maybe add a couple things in that they might miss. We'll see. Sure. Um, and then just our, our thoughts on it. But as far as the synopsis goes, we think it might be easier rather than us writing our own synopsis, which is what we normally do. Uh, oh, you do? Well, <laughs> I, either write, I either write a synopsis or we kind of wing it. Um, right. So we're going to try using... I'm going to wing over the edge because I've seen it. This right. might have been my... 15th time in my whole life. Whereas it was my first time. Right. And it was both of our first times for Dr. Zhivago. For Zhivago, because it's so very long. <clears throat> All right. So, as Wikipedia says, the film takes place mostly against the backdrop of pre-World War One years. Um, World War One itself and the Russian Revolution of 1917. Mm-hmm. 
and the Russian Civil War. Yes. Which went forever. Maybe not forever. Yeah. But long enough to break Zhivago's heart. So at the beginning of the film, we see this little kid is orphaned. Um, there's It's actually this beautiful shot. Uh, so there's an overture, of course, because it's yes. an older film. But then when it comes in, um, you see this amazingly beautiful shot of all of these people walking through the wilderness or a, fi- a field with this massive mountain behind them. It's, yeah. it's my probably my favorite shot of the movie. Um, there's another cool. shot that I really liked um, of Lara later in the film that looked over her. But um, but this one was an amazing one, uh, shot. You see, you really get a feel for how insignificant and small we are as people right. with that gigantic mountain and these little tiny ants of people walking across this field. And they're walking to um, a cemetery. Aww. And this kid, Yuri Zhivago, um, is, his mother has died. And so he's, he's now an orphan. And so... Um, you know they they put her in the ground. They nailed the coffin shut. All that stuff. Yeah, that was crazy. They show a lot of her corpse too. Yeah, they show a bit of her corpse. Uh, well, um, her, the, her face. Even even after she's in the ground, the, yeah. the camera cuts to inside the coffin. Uh, and I thought, oh my gosh, she's going to come back to life and she's going to be buried alive. She, yeah, I was but, worried too. I'm like, why are we looking at her in the coffin in this weird cutaway? Yeah, just be, maybe just to cement the fact that this poor woman's dead. Yeah. And it's pretty much only downhill from here. So these people take in Yuri. Yes. Zhivago. It's this man, his wife, and their daughter, Tanya. Yeah. Do they ever explain how they're, how, why they're taking this kid in or how they knew the family? I feel like they never really explained that. If they said it, they said it quickly, or it might have happened while I was dozed off, because I dozed off really really early in this movie. Um, But my guess is maybe they were, you know, neighbors, friends of the family, something like that. I mean, they seem to really just be like, we're taking you in, buddy. Yeah. And, you know, he seemed to know them well enough. Right. So that was nice. Yeah. And all he had left from his mom's will and testament Mm -hmm. was a... um, triangular guitar-like instrument, the name of which I now forget. Balalaika, is that it? That sounds very close, so I'm going to say yes. Okay. I'm sure it'll come up in our notes at and some point. And he has point, a, a beautiful red one of those, and uh, the old man who's taking him in talks about how his mother used to be able to make it sing as if there were two guitars playing yeah. in the room. And he asks him if he could play, and, and Yuri says, no, I can't. And he's like, I thought all people from this area could could play this right and the kid's like well where are you from he's like i'm from moscow and you're gonna come to moscow and you're gonna live with us right and then and then we go to moscow he does yes yes and you get a feel that um yuri is coming from this small village very rural oh yeah um poor quite possibly uh and he goes um we, we basically flash forward to him as an adult and he's finishing school yes and he's wants to be a doctor he's, and yes a poet and a poet so he's a doctor by trade but a poet by heart and he's written poetry but of course um the russians won't let people read his poetry right so uh later when he he meets his uh when he meets up with tanya I almost said sister, but that'd be kind of weird. They weren't exactly brother and sister. They were not 
As far as we know. Yes. Um, but they were sort of raised together. <clears throat> yes. But uh, um, we learned that in France they appreciate young Russian poets and that he's, he's published and well-loved in France. That is correct. Um, but uh, so we go, to, we go to Moscow and um, Tanya is coming back from Paris. And then we also meet Lara. We do meet Lara, but we kind of met Lara because it occurs to me we jumped right over yeah, yeah, I was the beginning kind of, of the movie. No, no, no. That, I was gonna, that only just dawned on me. I was going to jump back a little bit okay, to Lara and her mother. Um, that's well, what you're talking about? No, Further I'm back. talking about um, the fact that the movie actually oh, starts. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're right. So it's actually a story being told. Yes, it actually starts in, what do you think, maybe the 50s-ish or something? Yeah, somewhere in that. Um, and it starts with... This man who claims to be Dr. Zhivago's brother. I can't believe we skipped over that. I, well, it's wild. That's kind of amazing that that happened. Yeah. Because that's how long the movie is. It's important, it's important, but it's something that you don't see very often. You yeah. Don't, you don't talk to these characters or see these characters very much. No. Although he is narrating a lot. He is. And so you have Alec Guinness cool yes, playing... Sir Alec Guinness, if playing, I'm not mistaken. Playing uh, Zhivago's brother, long lost right. brother. And he's... He's overseeing some some type of uh, labor camp, it seems like. Yeah, um, they seem to be at a dam, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, they don't really show the dam until later in the film. You just right. see all these people walking in, and you see lots of rocks and kind of mountainous stuff. Right. And they talk about, um, you're bringing more people in to move rocks, and it would be easier if we could get excavators to do this. Right. Um, and we, we would be done ahead of schedule if we had ex- excavators. But, so... He has this girl brought up. Yes. And uh, and her name is Tanya. Tanya Karamovsky. Karamovsky. And he starts asking... Uh, the the brother, played by Alec Guinness, who's yes. um, maybe my favorite actor in the film, um, starts asking the girl all these questions about what did your father look like, what did your mother look like, you know, what did they call her, and, all, and on and on. And she tells him that she doesn't really remember her father... And that um, she remembers her mother as being big. You know, she was little, so her mother was big. Yes. And she doesn't remember what people called her. Right. She just remembers her name as Mommy. And I should point out, it was Komarovsky, not Karamovsky. I mixed Komarovsky. up my R and my M. Okay. I'm sure this is Komarovsky. There's a lot of uh, names that we're probably yes. going to butcher throughout this whole thing. Quite possibly. So the girl, the, Alec Guinness's character is trying to essentially find out if this girl is his niece. Right. And, Dr. Zhivago's long-lost daughter. And the girl, of course, is like very reluctant to believe that idea. Yeah. I, I almost think she's just terrified to have to be talking to a, a general of the new communist Red Army, I guess. I, yeah, I don't, yeah. Well, you know, after a shift at work, you don't want to talk to that guy. So he so he goes on and tells the story yes about um about Yuri and Lara essentially and Tanya and so on. And it uh, takes... he he also references yeah, it takes a while. <laughs> uh he also uh shows the this book of poetry which um I think it was the 40s. Um okay. The mid 40s. Uh I feel like they made a reference to the fact that it was they're just now allowing people to read this this book. Yeah, um, true. And I feel like the 40s were mentioned, uh, which is interesting because the film 
this film wasn't allowed to be shown in Russia until the 90s. Wow. So I thought there was kind of an interesting parallel where um, in the in the movie, there's this book of poetry about this woman that pe- people weren't allowed to read right. for decades. And then the same kind of thing happened with this movie. Right. So pretty cool. He's telling this story and he also tells a story of Lara and Lara um, has a, a, a crossing with Yuri without them even knowing it. They end up riding the same uh, train car, which the train car and their, their passing without knowing sort of comes back full circle later on. But right. um, he continues on to his home after, after school Yes. And she gets off the train and finds her friend Pavel. Yeah. Who is handing out these flyers asking people to come to a peaceful protest of... Pavel? I, I believe his name was... I thought it was I'm Pasha. sorry, Pasha. I'm Pasha. sorry. Pasha. Because then there's a Sasha. I knew a Pavel once. We're going we're gonna to blow this podcast just... All right. Pasha. Up. I, I'm sorry. Pasha. Pasha's a revolutionary. Yes. But not a Bolshevik. Because he says the Bolsheviks... Uh, what is it? They don't believe in good or bad. Something like no, they don't believe in right or wrong. I forget. Yeah, he's a he's a <clears throat> a reformer. Yeah, he's he's pushing for reform, and so he's handing out these things. And of course, the police show up, and they're like, "You can't do this. Give me your papers." And you know, they they make him leave. And, yeah, and Lara sort of shows up and is like, "Oh, it's my brother." Blah 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 blah. You know, don't, you know, forgive him. I'll take him home. Right. And so they leave, and the, and Pasha's like, why did you call me your brother? And oh, yes. Why not thought, your well, fiancé? Yeah. Well, that's the easiest thing. And he's like, I, well, why not your fiancé? And she was just kind of like, ah, ha, ha. That's so silly. So, obviously, Pasha has feelings for Lara. Oh, yeah. Everybody has feelings for Lara. In this movie. Everybody does, and it's kind of ridiculous. She's like a siren out on a rock somewhere, and all right. these men just keep... Crashing their boats into those rocks. Mm -hmm. So Lara goes home and we learn that she lives with her mother who owns a dress shop. Yes. uh, And has all these women making dresses and stuff. And when Lara comes in, she sees uh, Komarovsky. Komarovsky, played by Rod Steiger. He's just kind of like lounging in their apartment in the back of the store. And clearly he is... uh, a suitor for her mother. Right. So they have a relationship. And one evening, um, she goes to, I think later that evening even, she goes to escort him out, uh, Lara does. Yes. And she's been studying. And uh, and as she goes to escort him out, he sort of starts making eyes at her and puts like a little like lace thing over her head. Yeah. And he can clear, clearly he's... He's moving in on her. Yeah. But it's a little unclear whether she's into it or not at that time. Right. I felt like she seemed really uncomfortable, but also um, amused by it. Creepy old Komarovsky. So then comes the night where the protest is supposed to happen. Yes. And Komarovsky is supposed to take Lara's mother out to dinner and dancing to some big affair. Right. And it's sort of implied that he knows something's going to happen because of this protest. He's like, I want to hurry up because I don't, I want to avoid such and such street. Yeah. Well, Lara's mother is sick. So she, so 
she insists that he take Lara. I think she was Lara was going to go with him initially, anyways. Mm. So she's like, "Still go out," and Lara's like, "No, no, no, you don't need to do that." And he ends up taking her anyways. Boy, does he! And so, yep. So they go out and they have sort of some awkward conversation, and he gives her a little bit, a little bit of wine, even though she's only seventeen. He gives her quite a bit of wine. Well, he starts her off, you know, fairly small. All right. Um, and they, then they dance a little. They dance and spin around the floor, and she's she becomes kind of taken in by him. I think at that point. Yeah. And they have a, a grand old time. Meanwhile, Pasha is out marching peacefully with yes. uh, with a lot of people in the streets. They've got like a band going, mm-hmm. like a brass band and drum yeah, and drums, what have yeah. you. And Javago goes out on his balcony and kind of observes this peaceful protest, and then goes back in. Right. Uh, his his sort of stepmother, the woman that that took him in, comes out to look at look at everything with him, and uh, it's sort of referenced that maybe she's a little ill, so mm. she shouldn't be out there because she's freezing immediately. So they usher her back in. That's true. So Komarovsky, the jerk, takes Lara home. No, it's like no. First. I apologize. While they're all having dinner in their big, rich, fancy thing, uh, Zhivago's essentially, you know, foster mother, she's reading the banners of the parade as they go Mm. by, and it's like, liberty, freedom, brotherhood, bread, right? Right. She's like, oh, isn't that sweet? Like, those sound like great things. And then as Komarovsky and all of them are having their dinner, all of the protesters basically gather like yeah like right under the windows of this restaurant where essentially the ruling aristocrat class is all dining and they sing this beautiful song and then the entire restaurant is silent and they're listening and they're all looking toward the window and then like shortly towards the end of the song komarovsky says uh maybe they'll sing in tune after the revolution like just yeah Dismissive. And, oh yeah. man, that pissed me off. And now, of course, the whole audience, the whole uh, restaurant laughs and giggles. Right. So, th- the protest does move on. Yes. And Komarovsky uh, takes Lara home in a sleigh, and as they're driving home, police or soldiers seem to come out of uh, dragoons, dragoons, as they call them. Yeah, the dragoons uh, come out of a gated area. They've got horses and and whatnot. Clearly, something's up. Yeah. And while they're going home, uh, Komorowski decides to make his move on Lara, and they uh, he puts his tongue in her mouth. He sure does. They, they're Russian people, but they French kiss. Yes. And I read that uh, that for the kiss, and you know she looks a little shocked at first, and yeah. then they start going at, it, at each other, that for that kiss, um, Rod Steiger actually did put his tongue in her mouth. Oh, boy. And so her reaction was a real reaction, because that wasn't really... Planned. There there's, you have it. There's also a slap later on in the movie where she slaps him and he slaps her back. That's right. And that was also not planned. <laughs> I believe that. So, she looked very uh, shocked by that one. Uh, and so we're, we're, we're veering off of um, Wikipedia a little bit here because there's not much here in this Wikipedia thing. Okay. Um, so I apologize if we sound if we're jumping all over the place. It happens. So Komarovsky has put the moves on Lara. And then takes her home and... Do they shag, you think? No, I don't think so. Because, I mean, her mom's home. Yeah, her I mom's know, home. So, but maybe they got it on in the carriage? I don't think so. I think I think they made out in the carriage and that was it. All right. But I'm the not dragoons... Sure. I'm yeah. not sure they ever get to that point till much later 
at Christmas time. Oh, I think that's the first time that happens. Okay, but um, the, the dragoons ride their horses on the protesters with their sabers out, just beat not, up a lot of people, beat them up, probably killed a couple people. Uh, we we don't initially see what happens to Pasha. Right. We do see that. Um, he, we do see that he picks up a gun. That's right. Yes. Off the ground, and then he sort of is disappeared into the fray. Yes. And a lot of the action, what you're seeing, um, you're not actually seeing people getting hurt. You're seeing um, Zhivago coming back out on his balcony and witnessing the whole thing. And you're seeing sort of his face and his reaction. And then the guy who, the man who took him in, sort of his father, um, who's actually the professor of the school. Yes. uh, He comes out also. And so... Zhivago goes down to try and tend to the wounded, and he's like bandaging people, some people up, and bodies are being thrown into a cart. Mm. And uh, and the police come and they say, "Get back inside." And Zhivago kind of gives him a little bit of guff, uh, but he's like, the police officer is like, "I'll have you arrested if you don't go back inside." And so yeah. the professor comes and gets him and takes him back in. Poor Zhivago had to see all that with his beautiful poet eyes. Yeah. So then. Pasha goes to visit Lara, and he's bruised and got this huge gash down the side of his yeah, face. Yeah, it's gross. And he he she lets him in, and he pours iodine on his face, just straight out of the ball, just pours it on his head. Yeah. And uh, and then he gives her the gun and says, will you hide this for me? I need you to hide this for me. And she, she does, because her mother comes out too, and so she stashes it really quickly. Yes. And... Uh, the mother's like, oh, are you are you going to be going out? And she's like, yeah, I'm going to go to church. Right. Which they don't ever show Lara go to church. The next time we see Lara, the next scene, she is uh, at a dinner or theater or something. Some kind of weird, almost motel room kind of thing with, yeah, Komarovsky. with Komarovsky. They're in like a Komarovsky. private room. Yeah. Which and she's wearing a dress. That's, that's where they're going to do it. But yeah. I'm not 100% sure. I'm pretty sure they... The, that's but when that they scene that's start going on there. doing the sex okay. to each other. Yeah. Because, okay. yeah, she's wearing a dress that she says he picked out, and then... It's a very, like... It's a bright red it's bright red dress. kind of sexy, low cleavage kind of dress, yeah. especially for that time period. Something you'd see in, like, a Western saloon, not in a Russian, you know, frozen street uh, Moscow. Right. And she, uh, she gets all huffy with him at, at some point. He, right. he kind of is um, a little rough with her. Not not physically so much, but um, verbally rough yeah. with her. And so she's like, I'm out of here. And he, is this when he calls her a slut? I can't remember. I feel like it is. Yeah. Um, so, he, so he calls her a slut and uh, and she's like, I, you know, basically like, I don't have to take this. And he, he he's like, you'll come back. They always come back. And she goes to put her shawl on and he goes up to her and from behind and like holds her yeah and he's like baby stay and she does she does he's basically got full-on control of this poor young girl and then the next thing we see yeah. is somebody writhing in a bed and right. moans and you were like close your eyes wes <laughs> yeah yeah but that's not at all what was happening no uh, it was a nice uh um, misdirection. Yes, absolutely. Because then we see through a window somebody still writhing in a bed, but then Komarovsky is fully clothed, moving around in that room. And he's worried. Uh, yeah, and it's like, well, what the heck is he doing? And he writes on a piece of paper, puts it in an envelope, seals it, takes it down to uh, there's like a, a cab guy. Yeah, his carriage man, cab. I think. Uh, yeah, and he's like, 
go to this house, get the professor, bring him back immediately. So right. the guy goes, and um, there's a recital going on at the professor's house. Right. And uh, Tanya and Zhivago. Zhivago, Yuri, are there, and they're sitting on the stairs, and they're both a little bit bored. Uh, and you get the feeling that they're kind of making eyes at each other. Oh, sure. And uh, there's definitely reference that they, they have feelings for each other. I thought it was so cute the way they were sitting on the stairs together as opposed to in a regular chair. Yeah. You know, it was like they snuck just a little bit away. It was like they were still the kids yeah. of the household. But even though they were in their fancy outfits. Right. So the professor comes out and there's sort of some veiled references to the fact that she has feelings for him. Yes. Uh, about, you know, would you want to be with a doctor who does general practice? And she says, is he a, you know, is he a poet? And he's like, oh, surely not. And she's like, well, then no. Ah. So, uh, so clearly she's saying that she wants to be with Yuri. There's a ring at the door. And, <clears throat> pardon me. Tanya, Careful. Tanya goes. Drink your iced tea. Yeah, thank you. Tanya goes to answer the door. Yeah. And uh, it's the note. And the professor says, Yuri, come with me. It's time for you to do some general practicing. Right. So they go. They get out of there so fast. They go back to what is essentially Lara's mother's dress shop slash yep. home. Correct. And they find that writhing on the bed was... Well, you don't see even... They, they do a whole bunch of stuff. They bring out like a tube. Oh, yeah, that's and true. They, they say, what did she take? And they show this empty blue bottle. Which looked, oddly enough, like the bottle of the iodine, iodine uh-huh. that Pasha had poured on mm-hmm. his face. Did people try to commit suicide by drinking iodine? Was that a thing? I don't know. Let us know, viewsters. Tweet at us, Stephen Nohowood or Movie Hippo, and let us know if iodine suicide was ever a thing. So they, so you don't really know who it is, right? Right around the bed, you actually almost maybe think it's it's uh, Laura. Yeah, because you know when they were arguing, I guess this was something to think about. He he makes a reference to like maybe you should just go home and tell your mother, what right? Really, what, what's really going on? Um and Obviously, Lara doesn't feel good about that. So you you kind of think that maybe this is Lara. And so they do a bunch of work on this person. And then um, they send Komarovsky out to get water. And yes. Yuri's like, is she going to be okay? And he's like, yes, she's going to be. She's going to recover. She'll be fine. And then he pulls the sheet away and they reveal that it's the mother. Yeah. And... Uh, she and is so he not tells, dressed. And she's not dressed. <laughs> So the professor tells Yuri to go find the girl, right. Lara, and tell her that sh- that the mother's going to be okay, that she's going to live, and that she shouldn't worry so much. So he goes around the dress shop, and he's looking for her, and he sees her through a window. He sees just her hand. It's real dark in the room. Yeah. And then a light comes in the room, and it's Komarovsky coming into the room, and he you don't hear it, but he's telling her that the mother's going to be fine. Right. And she's so grateful. But... She starts kissing him all over his face and his hands, and and Komarovsky's like kind of pushing her away, and she sits back down and sort of cries herself back to sleep. Yeah. And Komarovsky, as he's leaving the room with his light, sees Yuri and knows that Yuri knows right what's going on between him and this young girl. Sorry, I'm just checking the notes now. It's all right. I'm. I'm- having a hard time figuring out exactly what happens next because so many things happen. Yeah. So Lara go meets with Komarovsky uh, to tell him that she's going to get married to someone else. Yeah. She's going to go and settle down. 
And she decides she's going to settle down with Pasha. With Pasha, the revolutionary. And, you know, Pasha's... They have this kind of contentious conversation about whether Pasha being a teacher out in the middle of nowhere would be good for Lara and, you know... Any of their offspring? Money and... Yeah. yeah. And, uh... So anyways, Pasha's, you know, cranky about it. But mm-hmm. but they their intent to marry... This is where Komarovsky goes. So this is right around. It's right around Christmas. Well, this is where you know he says to her this whole thing about how like you know you're there's two types of women in the world. He's like there's two types of men in the world. Basically, men like your Pasha there, mm-hmm. and essentially men like Komarovsky himself. Yep. And then he says, and there's two types of women in the world. I don't even remember if he, he says, really. He says you're not the first. We both know you're not the first one. Right. And then he's like, what well, you are, Lara is a slut. That's when he says it. Yes. And I think that's when she slaps him. And then he slaps her back. He slaps her back. And then he just wrestles her and starts putting the moves on her. And he's like... And he's just he's like, like... let's find out. Yeah, and it's and pretty that's, terrible. That's what kind of made me think that they hadn't had sex yet. Because oh. he says, let's find out. It, essentially, like, I'm going to force myself on you. And if you decide you're going to enjoy this and go with it, then we'll know you're, what, what you're Yeah. Really so this is one of the most romantic movies ever made, according to everybody, everybody. Yeah, that's, it's, uh, yeah. Um, so here you go. So, yes, yeah, so he forces himself on her, and sure enough, uh, you know, poor Lara, she only puts up a little bit of resistance, and then she, she basically, in. she gives in, she but gives in the, and, when it's done, and you don't see the act, you see right. him, him get up, and she's there all sweaty, you can tell she's disgusted. Yeah. She didn't want to be a part of it. It's For not sure. Like, it's not like she gave in and enjoyed it. No, but, I just want to make that clarification. But it's sort of like, in a way, she did sadly prove his point about her. Right. She lived up to his horribly low expectations of her. So she goes and grabs the gun after Komarovsky leaves. Yes, the gun that she's been hiding for Pasha. Yeah. And she goes to Komarovsky's house, and the butler's like, oh, he's at such and such party. Don't tell him I told you. Yeah. Yeah. And Jeeves there. so she leaves and she starts heading towards the party and she runs into Pasha and Pasha's like, we have plans. Where, where are you going? And she says, I left everything in the note. He's like, what do you mean the note? She's like, I, I explain absolutely everything in the note. And so she she leaves him standing there and then he, he's kind of like, what, what's going on? So he eventually follows her around the corner and sees that she had gone into this big party. Yes. And she goes into the party, and Komarovsky's off playing poker. Right. Meanwhile, Yuri and Tanya are there, and um, they announce that, you know, he's graduated, and he's going to be a doctor, and that he is betrothed to Mary. And as they jump into Tanya, yeah, you get a loud gunshot. And we come to see that Lara has shot Komarovsky, but shot him like in the In like the forearm or something. Yeah, and um, and they're you know all these men are there and they're like holding her and wrestling the gun away and stuff and right. they're like call the police and Komarovsky's like no police and Pasha comes in and man the the crowd he like parts the Red Sea that yeah he walks in with such confidence everybody moves and I think that's the first hint that there's something more and something greater about Pasha than we. Right. Come to understand. Right. Whether it's terrifying or heroic, yeah. we might not know. So he goes and he gets Lara and takes her out of there. And 
he goes home with her and he reads the letter and he's crushed. I might have been asleep at this part. Oh yeah. Sorry. You see it you see it through the window and he, it's very clear that like what's in the letter has destroyed him. And Wait, and is this the scene where this it starts with the window all foggy and there's just a little bit of candlelight and then as we get closer to the window the ca- the heat from the candlelight is is defrosting the window? Uh, is that that scene or was that earlier in the movie? It might be that scene because then you see Yuri drive ride by in a sleigh with Tanya and he looks up and sees it. Whoa, okay. So, you said yes. I think you're right. So, Pasha is devastated and it's clear that what was in the note was when she said she told him everything that happened, everything, the fact that Komarovsky was there and that he raped her and all this stuff is in there. Oh, man. Oh, man. Even even the description of this movie is making you fall asleep. It's true. We're 20 minutes into the movie, folks. So, Zhivago um, deals with Komarovsky. Uh, I guess I, I skipped over that part. Yeah, he tends to his bullet wound. Yeah, he's like, can I trust your professional discretion? And he's like, of course you can, even though you're kind of a scumbag. A total scumbag. Um, and there's a reference that... Komarovsky was friends with Yuri's father. Yes. And when Yuri's father died, Komarovsky, there was a will. Yeah. And Komarovsky essentially got everything. Yeah. And left Yuri and his mother destitute. Right. So but wrong. Pasha marry, marries Lara, and they go off and have a daughter named Katya, and they, they live out in um, this kind of remote region not not near moscow right now i can't remember the name of that town they said it a thousand times no in the i last think i think you're movie. thinking of gramenko but I, I think that's later maybe okay so now we kind of flash forward and uh tanya has a baby as well and yeah. World War one happens and um Zhivago is sent um by the labor party to Oh, I'm sorry. Not not the Zhivago we know. Yuri's brother, who's yes. telling this story, Alec Guinness's character, is sent by the the Labor Party to register with the Imperial Russian Army, right, for the Bolsheviks to sort of subvert their yeah their cause. I'm going to give them. He's like a double agent, right? And what a double agent! Meanwhile, Zhivago is a medic. He's a medic in, yeah. in the army. Now, Pasha um, fights also for the army against German forces that are trying to invade. Right. And he goes out and he's seen as a leader, a real leader. Absolutely. They talk about the men who can't lead, and so the men just yawn in the trenches yeah. and then the men who who can lead and what this the, these men will do for them and they go running into battle and there's an explosion and then and then all of a sudden you see pasha's glasses land on the ground and right all these men dying all around him all the men dying so lara not knowing what happens to her husband um leaves her child to be cared for by someone else and and enlists as a nurse Correct. so she can try to find her husband and she ends up being drafted by Zhivago through some circumstances, some sort of like cross meetings with each well, other. Well, uh, they're they're leaving. Lara's camp is leaving, and they encounter um, the 
uh, maybe the Labor Party's troops coming toward them. It's not really clear who they don't ever say who the troops are. Yeah, but they're essentially troops who don't see eye to eye with the people. Yeah, basically a bunch of Russian deserters who are going home to because they don't have a leader anymore right they're going home to participate in the russian revolution and say forget about this war with germany we got to fix things back here yeah they're going home they encounter a group of russian military and they're just like come on boys like just turn around come with us turn around you know and they just keep on marching and marching and there's kind of two leaders of this uh, Russian military group. There's kind of this, you know, chubby older man who probably has no business leading soldiers. And then there's a younger man, and all these other revolutionaries are like, "Come on, boys, turn around, turn around, come with us, turn around." And then all of a sudden, like one of the leaders of the Russian military, the kind of younger guy, s- just sort of stops and says, "We're turning around," and like they all take their hats off and they're all like, "Yay, we're all on the same side. We're all going to go home." To fix Russia mm. and say f this war because this is Russia's rich versus Germany's rich and we're being, mm-hmm. you know, us poor pawns are being forced to kill their poor pawns for for their nonsense. But then mm-hmm. another Russian military leader, the kind of younger dude, gets up on a, on a barrel. Yeah, he gets up on a barrel and starts saying like, you know, starts rallying against the revolution. And then something he, happens. He falls into the barrel, and then they he kind of shoot him. Yeah, and he seems like he's actually doing a good job. He seems like maybe he's going to rally the troops, most of them, back. Oh, yeah. When he slips and falls into the barrel of water. And then one of the deserters yeah. grabs a gun and... Just takes him out, and he sinks dead into the barrel full and, of water. And then it's a, a fight. It's a it's a nasty fight. Yeah, well, they go and they grab the, the older Russian leader down from his Beat horse, the and they just out of that club guy. him to death with their guns. And then you see somebody pull his hat up and wave it at the crowd, and it's like... Right. Let's do this. And they head back to revolt in Russia. Except for some people, including Zhivago. Who's right. There, He's a who, medic. Who starts tending to the wounded and he gets Lara to help him. Yeah. Reluctant Lara. So isn't that right there where they, that's where they meet. re-met? Yeah, that's where they meet me. Yeah. Um, and so... Oh, I bumped my mic. So they end up being redeployed to a, a little area... And Yuri is told, you're the head of this hospital now. And yeah. there's like, like dozens of soldiers. And he's like, I can't do this. And they're like, you got to try. That's your order. Those are your orders. Right. And so it's him and Lara against the world, essentially. Yeah, just caring for everybody. For I'm m- sure Lara's in charge of all the laundry and whatnot. Yeah, for months and months. Months um, and months. I, and I think it must go on more than a year because uh, at some point... Tanya back at home in Moscow gets a letter right where he's talking about what they're doing and and how great and helpful Lara is and he asks about um his sort of his stepmother the woman that took them in yeah and Tanya's mom Tanya's mom and Tanya goes he must he must not have gotten the letter and he was like that was the the professor says that was 8 months ago yeah he's kind of cracking jokes about how his wife's been dead all this time now <laughs> yeah so it's been a while yeah and, and Pasha's, Pasha's getting older and, and whatnot. Sasha. Sasha. <laughs> As if that's names. not confusing enough. Sasha, Pasha. Oh, man. So, uh, eventually, um, the war is over. Yes. And Yuri has <gasps> gotten very close with Lara. Okay, yes. That's where I wanted to get yeah. to. And they, he sort of expresses that he loves her. And he, he moves in 
to get close. And she says to him, you're going back to Tanya, and I don't want you to have to lie about me. Right. That's a beautiful sentiment right there. The best moment for Lara in the whole movie, I think. Um, You know, I don't want you to do something you'd have to lie about. So he... Yuri returns home. Mm -hmm. And when he gets there... He finds the home that they lived in, which is this beautiful, like, not a, a mansion per se, but it's like... Like a city version of a mansion. Yeah, it was. it's really nice. Uh, it's completely in disarray, and there are, are like, 13, 13 families, families living in it. Yeah. And it's been taken over by the government, and they have somebody there, some two really stern people, um, this man and this woman, sort of overseeing the whole thing. Right. And sort of testing loyalties. And, yeah. Um, Basically... Like, very early generations of the KGB, I guess you could say. Sure. Because <laughs> they are literally just like, we're here to watch you foul up, and then when you foul up, we're going to have you sent to a camp somewhere. Yeah, so they've turned these these really beautiful homes into tenements, essentially. Yeah. Um, so he goes to, he's reassigned to work at the hospital. Yeah. And... There, uh, there's like bouts of like typhus, right? They say, uh, but of course they're not allowed to say it, right? And uh, and then people are starving everywhere and having a hard time keep, keeping the stoves lit. And there's a moment, a really interesting moment, where he gets called back to the house from work to check on a a person, and they're worried. Of course, it's typhus. Right. And he's like, "Don't worry, it's not typhus. It's this other thing that this other epidemic in our country." He starved to death. Yeah. So uh, he goes upstairs to his apartment, where Tanya, the professor, and Sasha are. Sasha, the baby, and it's cold in there, and the stove's not lit. And he's like, "No wonder the kid's losing weight. It's freezing in here." And he's kind of getting on Tanya, and she goes off behind a curtain to cry. Aww. And the professor informs him, you know, she's doing the best she can. She turns the stove off after you leave and turns it on just before you come home so it's warm. Yeah. And then he goes to confront her, and she says, we don't have enough fuel. So Yuri goes outside to um, steal, steal wood, wood from, a, from a fence barricade. Finds a broken-ass fence, steals the wood from it. And there is a... A military man who sees him do it. Uh-oh. But we find out it is his brother who yes. doesn't, doesn't know. And the brother follows Yuri back, and Yuri's hiding the wood in his coat. And when Yuri gets in, he sees people leaving his apartment with all of their belongings. Right. They're just and, taking all sorts of fancy stuff, whatever they want. Yeah. And so he goes up, and the, the mean people tell him that... Uh, Oh, it's being reallocated, and you're going to have to share your apartment with more people. Right. And uh, and so they're reallocating your – or we're putting your things in storage. And he says, this isn't storage. This is stealing. And then somebody tries to take the balalaika. And, right. And he snatches that away and, of course, drops all the wood that's in his coat. And now he's really in trouble because they're like, where would you get this? And he's like, from a fence. And they're like, you can't do that. So mm. it looks like uh, it's going to hit the fan when – his brother walks in yeah. to the room and all he does is snap his fingers yeah. and everybody leaves the room. Yeah, they know that this is a dude who could, high up. He could have them all shot within 10 minutes if he wanted to. Right. Get some of those Stalinist purgers to come on over and 
thin out the herd. So he he explains to Yuri who he is, and they um they like hug and kiss each other on the cheek and do that whole thing, and and he's really happy to see his brother, and he um his brother tells him that the government doesn't appreciate his poetry, right? And that it's looked um <gasps> it's it's been condemned by the Soviet censors. Yeah. What you gasped well, just now. we got to step on the gas a little. It's yeah. already 5.36. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, yeah, no, <laughs> There's it's, so it's much of this one. movie. I know. Uh, and so he says, here's what I'm going to do. Is I'm gonna, I, he, he lies to him, too. He says, right. he says, I don't like it either. Yeah, so that was a really cool moment. To get him to agree to, um, to leave with his family. So right. he gives him these papers to get them on a train, to get them to, I think it's called Gromenko. Something Which like is that. out in the middle of nowhere. And it's where the professor has a house. Yes. And owns a house out there, and it's not too far from another uh, another village. Area. Yeah, we'll something get to that with in a, a T, I think. So um, they are on this train, and they're heading out, and it stops for a period of time. Yeah, overnight, and he gets out to take a walk into the woods, and he gets confronted by some military people who drag him back, and there's they drag him to an armored train, and they're like. Um, take him to Strelnikov. Strelnikov. And he gets brought into Strelnikov's office, and we find out it is... Pasha! Pasha has changed his name to Strelnikov, and he's now leading this this Soviet resistance. Yeah, he's essentially like, uh, gosh, is he a general? He's he's a Bolshevik... uh, Well, he's he's a commander. They refer to him as a commander. All right. Uh, But he's like the leader of the Bolsheviks. Yeah, he's up there. Still got that scar so, from the Dragoon. Strelnikov tells Yuri that um, he knows where uh, Lara is. He's, All like, right. he's, like, he's like, your wife and child miss you. They, they need you. And he's like, I know where my wife is. She's in this town. It's like, you're, you're, you're a 10. That sounds... Oh, gosh. I can never remember it. I feel like they said it a thousand times. Yuriatin. Yuriatin. Yuriatin sounds right. I think it's right. So, uh, but... There's anti-communist people out there called the White Party. Yes. Or the White Army. This is the Red Army and the White Army. Yeah, they want to put the Tsar back in charge. And and they're, like, destroying the villages around them. They're burning things down. Yep. So anyways, they release Yuri. He gets back on his train, and they get to where they're going. And Tanya's like, this is beautiful. This is amazing. And this guy that the professor used to know shows up. I'm trying to speed it up a little bit. Sure, more. sure. And he... Picks them up, and they're on their way to the professor's home. Really and they, beautiful place. They see all the smoke from the distance, and he's like, um, that's Yuriatin. Yeah. Um, they're burning Yuriatin. Yikes. What happens when they get to the nice, beautiful place they, with the pretty onion domes? With the onion domes. They, uh, they find that it has been uh, sort of condemned or uh, boarded up. Yeah, like by, seized for the people. Yeah, by the... I guess that'd be the white the white army that that sees that right. Well, I think the red army would you have think done. The red it. army did. I, yeah, it's if it's really, if it's for the people, I'm it's thinking. Really, I got really confused with the different factions. Sure, to be just completely honest. Um, so there's a cottage that wasn't boarded up next to it, and so yes. they decide to live there. They get some seed material, and they essentially start raising a farm and raising Sasha, and uh, then they find out that um, the. Uh, the czar has been gunned down yeah. um, and killed. 
You know, you gasped again. Go for it. Well, he was dead. That's all. Oh, okay. I'm just... So they're they're living, but they're so... actually living a pretty peaceful life away from everything, right? Um, and uh, Tanya gets pregnant, and she's like, "You need to get out of this house. Yeah, you need to go take a walk. Go to Yuriatin. I hear they have a library. If it's still there, you should go check it out." Yeah. So eventually, he does go to Yuriatin, and when he gets there to the library, who was there? Ooh, if I had to guess, I would say Lara. Lara's there. They start walking all over the town and looking at things, and they end up back at her apartment. And he's like, where's your kid? And she's like, at school. And then they just start their furious Mm -hmm. uh, make-out session. Um, Years in the making. I think at this point in the movie, Winter had come and gone 40 times. Yeah. And they they definitely do it. They definitely show them in bed. Um, And then eventually Yuri, uh, it's getting close to Tanya. Um, to have the baby and I think Yuri starts to have these feelings of guilt yes. so he's like I'm going to go into Yuri Otten and try and find some morphine she's like I don't need morphine he's like you might so um, really what he's doing is he goes into town to break up with Lara Yes, and you know he knows where the secret key is and all this stuff and uh, and he goes in and he, he breaks it off with her and of course she cries and stuff but I think she understands and uh, when he is on his way back on his horse um the army shows up and they they grab him. Yeah, the Red Army. The Red Army grabs him. And they say, we're enlisting you. We shoot deserters. Right. So he can't leave. So for two years, Zhivago works with the army and can't really communicate with his family at right. all. And they're gunning down white army people, including children. Yeah. Like, you know, Ooh. teens that are just like learning how to be soldiers or whatever. And eventually, in the middle of the snow, um, he just stops. He does when the the army is like confronted with some people. Then yeah, they, 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 they move. What is it? They bump into like probably like a dozen just women and children, just like staggering mm-hmm. through the snow. And they're just like the soldiers. The soldiers. They're like, what soldiers? The white soldiers. And she's like, the soldiers. That's yeah. All she says. And she just points them in one direction, and so they all wander off. And Yuri just doesn't move his horse. Yeah, and he just kind of stays toward the back, and they just keep on going. Because everybody's just dog-tired and freezing cold. And he's just like, I could just go this way. And he just turns. So he turns around. And nobody follows him. And and he ends up on foot. We assume his horse dies in the snow at some point. And um, he's trudging through the snow, and he sees what we think he's getting close to home. Um, Yeah, he he sees sees three two people with a small child. And he's like... Tanya, Tanya, and he's running after him, and of course it's not Tanya. Why would it be? Um, he eventually gets to Yuriatin, and he and it's like they're like everybody has been has left the city. There's yeah. no one left in the city anymore. He's got a bunch of boogers in his in his, his mustache, and it's gross. so gross looking. So he goes to uh, Lara's house. He finds the key. He he goes, and with the key is a note, and she's basically like, um, "I've left, but I'll come back. Um, I left." food it's behind this thing so the rats can't get to it yeah and so he goes up and it's like the only nice thing in this town anymore is this, right. this little apartment the only place where there might be some heat yep so he um he starts living there and trying to recuperate um and he finds out that tanya and um sasha and sasha have left the and the professor have left the cottage so they're not yeah. there so he just stays and he sort of starts to make a life with lara and uh, 
and then when he's like starting to feel a little bit better she's like this letter came for you um six months ago wow and he opens it up and it's from tanya and it turns out that tanya had come to Yuriatin to look for him right. and had met Lara and they, they know about each other. Yeah. So Tanya knows what's up. So anyways, Tanya sent this thing and says, this is where I, I'm sending this letter here because I think this is where you'll go first. We are leaving for Paris. We're with some Paris immigration, you know, like an outfit. You're right. Um, c- criminals essentially, but they're going to help us sneak us out of Russia and get us into Paris. Um, and that's, so that's where we're going. You have a little girl, um, right, she had the second baby. She had the second baby, yeah, because it's been two years. Uh, and so he just decides to just stay with Lara. Yeah. Um, I I'm, I was kind of flabbergasted by that. Uh, eventually, they leave the apartment. Oh, Komarovsky shows up. That's what Boy, happens. Boy, does he. So Komarovsky yeah. shows up, and he lets them know that the um, sort of the, the – I think they're called the Chica. They're like – or Cheka. Chica. They're the sort of KGB – Precursor to the KGB, I think. Sounds right. And that... Um, well, we should point out, he doesn't show up so much as he staggers in from the and, cold one and, night. And just comes in. Almost miraculously alive at all. And yeah. just comes in and plops down and he's got a bottle of vodka and he says, like, here's what's up. Strong Play Lakoff. my game or you're yeah. dead. He's like, Stromlikov's dead. Stromlikov is dead, that's right. So Stromlikov's been killed. <clears throat> and what what they were doing was they never moved against Lara, even though they knew that Lara was his wife. Right. Because they figured she's bait. So she will draw him back. And uh, Yuri's like, he doesn't even care about her. He never would have come back here. And and, uh, Komarovsky's like, no, actually, they got him only five miles from here. And he insisted his name was Pasha Antonov. His real last name. His real last name. Yeah. And uh, and he was coming back here. (laughs) And so he's like, so... That was the only thing keeping them from killing Lara. Yeah. Because she's associated with them. They're going to come for Lara and Katya. I'm going to give you passage out of here. And we're going to, we're going to, you know, head out toward the coast. And yeah. where you go from there is your call. But they were heading toward the Pacific coast. So basically through Mongolia and China and all that. Yes. Yeah. That seems like an odd choice, but what can you do? So they tell him to F off. Right. And they, they they literally throw him out, and the guy stumbles down the stairs, falls down the stairs and stuff, and back out into the cold. And he's like, you're going to regret this. So Yuri moves them back towards the cottage, but they can't stay in the cottage. That'd be super weird. So they pull down the boards off of the house, the yeah, big house with big the mansion. domes, and they move into the office. And the reason they move into the office is the windows and part of the roof is gone, and so it's just snow and ice in there. And it's kind of beautiful it's this like ice palace yeah chandeliers and stuff it's very uncomfortably pretty but the one room that they uh that wasn't affected by the snow so much is uh the office and so they set up a little home in the office with right and there's this beautiful desk this beautiful like leather and wooden desk and uh and he tells Lara that Tanya had told him a long time ago to write at this desk because he's a poet and he doesn't do poetry anymore ain't that the truth so he does begin writing, and he writes this book. Um, it's the the Lara poems, and uh, they're beautiful. And they're beautiful, and everybody ends up loving them. But um, eventually, 
Komarovsky shows up again, Yet again, but with with men, with soldiers with him at his side. Yeah, and he's like, "Give me a minute." To, you know, here's the deal: I'm getting on a train. I can get you out of here. You have to come. And they're like, "No, f you again." And he's like, "Let me talk to Yuri alone." So he takes Yuri out into the hallway and he says, "Here's the deal: these men that I'm with right now are an escort. Tomorrow they're going to come back as a firing squad and they're right. going to kill Katya and and uh, Lara." So you've got to you've got to come with me. Right. Well, he also points out that he will not take Katya and Lara without Yuri. Right. Well, Lara says to him, I'm not leaving without you. Right. So, but so, he even says like they're worthless to me. Like he needs Yuri for something. Yeah. He does not need Katya and uh and and Lara. Yeah. So he's basically saying, "Yo, dude, if you don't come with me, they're not going to be safe at all. So you might as well come. So they'll come. Yeah. I know you hate me, but tough, tough toenails. S. Tough toenails. Nice. So um, they agree to go with them. And they load up in the, the sleigh, but there's not enough room in the sledge for Yuri. Right. So he's like, I'm right behind you. So they drive off and he runs into the house. And we're not quite sure what is going on, but he runs and he desperately gets to the top and he can't get the ice off the window so he just breaks the window yeah the glass out so he can watch them just go over the crest of the hill and disappear and they get on the train and yuri doesn't show up when the train's got to leave and he's like your guy's not gonna come and she's like he was never gonna come with you yeah and this was this was all just to get us out of here and uh and essentially that's what we learned like he was desperate to see them leave because it was the last time he was gonna see right he had claimed as his new family and she informs uh um komarovsky thank you all these names so many that so many syllables she's pregnant with uh with yuri's child oh right child oh my gosh years later the brother Zhivago's brother right we we tells us that he found Yuri like destitute and emaciated in the streets of Moscow, and he fed him. And the brother, be- you know, Yuri begged him for a suit, and he clothed him and got him a new job. And one day he's on the train, the trolley, which we saw at the beginning of the film, mm-hmm. and he's looking out the trolley on his way to work, and he sees Lara walking down the street, and he can't get off the train. When it stops, he can't get off because people are getting on. And he gets stuck, and he eventually like moves his way through the people, and at the very next stop, he gets out, and he's right behind her. And he goes to call out for her, and he's like hobbled. He's yeah. limping and stuff. He his brother mentions his, uh, yeah, his heart had gotten really weak, too. Yeah. And he goes to call out, and he just all he lets out is a gasp. He starts removing his tie, and he's following her, and he has a heart attack in the street yep. and dies. Very sad. Extremely sad. Yeah, it's very sad. It's... it's the most heartbreaking thing in the film. That there is the most romantic scene it in is. the movie. Although he shouldn't have been going after her. He should have been going after Tanya. That's my... I do agree with that. But boy, oh boy, for as much talk as I heard about, oh, it's such a romantic movie. It's the most romantic yeah. movie. Blah, blah, blah. It's like, it's, it's mostly a horror show about war and revolution and, and yeah. you know, uh, uh, destitution. And then there's a couple of romantic things. So at Yuri's funeral... The um, there's just a line of people coming to visit the grave, right? Just a crazy amount. And basically, uh, the brother says that even though his work was banned, people found it anyways. And pe- people, if they love the poetry, they love the poet, right? 
So all these people come to pay their respects. And Lara shows up and she goes to introduce herself and she's on Lara. He's like, I found this manuscript in my brother's belongings called the Lara poems. Right. Um, they're beautiful. So, you know, this must be you. And she informs him that she had a daughter named Tanya. Named Tanya. And they were in Mongolia and they were separated. Yes. And she's looking to see if she can find this girl. And so he, he tries to help Lara. Um, and they don't have any luck after a lot of searching. And she was working in these labor camps, these Stalin labor camps. And she died or disappeared. But right. probably um, she died and her name was mixed up with someone else's number. And Right. They have no idea what happened to her. Yeah, he mentions like it was probably like falsely labeled in a file that's been mislaid somewhere. Yeah. So, anyway, so that's the story. And so, oh, and he also mentions that he fell in love with Laura while they were doing that. Yeah, (laughs) yet another person that fell in love with Laura. I think that's number four. So, he wraps up the story for this girl Tanya at the at the dam, and uh, her maybe boyfriend or husband David comes to pick her up from the the office yeah and she's like yeah it's okay and the guy's like what do you do and he's like i'm a conductor and he's like what do you conduct and she's like really proud of him and she's like this and she points out to the dam and all the water flowing out of the dam which yeah. is really cool and he's he Zhivago's brother or i should just call Zhivago, is fairly convinced that tanya is his niece but he's not a hundred percent and she would have to say, agree to it, too, to sort of, like, everybody buy into it. Yeah. And he's like, will you consider it? And she says, I'll consider it, and we'll talk later. He's like, I think I could do something for you. Cool. For your family. I like the sound of that. He's trying to be a good guy. And as she's walking away at the end of the film, he Zhivago notices she's carrying on her back a, the balalaika. Not the a, balalaika. A balalaika. A balalaika. Yeah, I was a little unclear if it was a or the well, because, his was like bright red with right, but it, like but, chrome all around it, and hers was just kind of wood colored, beat up. Yeah, but um, Lara, when she's on the train with Kamarovsky at the end, yeah, has the balalaika with her. He gives it. Uh, Zhivago makes sure Yuri makes sure he gives it to her in the sledge, so she oh, has yeah. the balalaika, and it's twenty years later. Right. So could it could it have gotten beat up could she have re, you know could the paint have been scratched off of it yeah maybe true so um i i don't know if it was the i like to think that it is because it makes a nicer story in my head that she had this bella like that this bella like somehow survived yuri's childhood all the way through to and it was bequeathed yeah. to his own child Zhivago's rosebud if you will yeah um, wow and uh and then he asks how she learned how to play, and her boyfriend's so proud of her. And he's like, "She just taught herself. She just—it's just." He's like, "It's a gift. It's a gift." And that kind of goes back to the beginning of the film when the kid gets it, and the the mother Yuri's mother can play it right you know, exquisitely. But Yuri says but, he can't play it yeah. at all, and so it sort of comes full circle. Maybe again. it skipped a generation. So that is Doctor Doctor Zhivago. It took us. Uh, we it, we amazingly explained it. In less than half the time it took to watch it. But yeah. boy, oh boy. If you've never seen it, go ahead and watch it. Drink a lot of coffee. What, what did you... Did you like the movie? <sighs> uh, like, I think I enjoyed it as it went along. Mm-hmm. But I 
don't think I could put myself through that ever again. Yeah, I liked the movie. I um, I don't know that I want to watch it again. However, yeah. I feel like if I did watch it again, I probably would pick up more stuff. Quite possibly. Just because I was, I was really trying to get the story. And there's so many names. And there's, so they, many. they're so different from what we're used to. Very and true. And there's different political factions and things that um, it makes it... Uh, difficult to right. think so you really got to pay attention i think if i watched it again kind of already knowing the story i might be able to pick up on some other things and that's yeah. that's a little bit unfortunate for the podcast because i think that's part of why we do the podcast is we want to talk about these things we picked up and we right. don't really get there was this um <clears throat> shot this other shot that i really liked yeah where lara comes out of a building out of a building and you see two like towers those little onion towery things and the shot is looking down on her, and she comes out, and she stops in between the two of them, and I think she's in the snow, and then she just all of a sudden turns right. Um, I'm not exactly hmm. sure what the meaning of it is. I just thought it was a really beautiful moment of her making a decision, um, and it just looked really cool to me. I'm trying to figure out where that happened. Yeah. Maybe I dozed off. Yeah. Because I dozed off within like the first 15 minutes yeah. of pushing play on this thing. But uh, you, stayed, you stayed awake for pretty much the yeah. rest of it after about 30 minutes, right? I mean, you were... Yeah, like I never I never dozed off and just stayed asleep at all. Yeah. But there were a couple times throughout the movie where I would just kind of, oh, you know, not off, wake back up, that sort of thing. Let's talk about Over the Edge. Well, Wait, no, you have one more we thing. Did, well, we got to... Let's just kind of get a couple more things out for oh, okay. for, for this. Um, when the movie came out, it yeah. was savaged by critics. Really? Yeah. For being three and a quarter hours? <laughs> no. Um, they referenced, they like, uh, Newsweek said stuff like hack job sets and wow. that had pallid photography. And I guess mm. I can understand, like, sort of the, um, you know, it's not de- that it was desaturated in any way, but everything is snowy. Right, you know, almost entire film. I get, I get that there's not a lot of color in there. I thought they did a good job balancing that with, like, when she shows up in that red dress in the red room. I mean, it is red. It is yeah. beautiful. And when um, the people get murdered in the street, there's they don't have a lot of blood. I think probably for ratings wise, you right. know, to not get censored. Um, but the blood that is in the street is super red. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, you know, I kind of understand what they're saying, but yeah. red but, is the Soviet flag. But David Lean, who direct, also directed Lawrence of Arabia, which is also another really long epic, right? Um, I love, which is I, in our bucket, if I'm not is, mistaken, it is in the bucket. I love Lawrence of Arabia. I think it's a much better film than this one. Yeah, um, but he was so um, affected by the criticism that at one point he swore he'd never make another movie again. Whoa, yeah. Um, if you were to adjust. Inflate for inflation. Uh huh. This would be the eighth biggest film of all time. Wow, really? Yeah, it's um, the second highest grossing adjusted for inflation. The second highest grossing film for MGM, just behind Gone with the Wind. Wow. And I think Gone with the Wind is the all-time leader if you adjust for inflation. Right. I believe that still is the case. But despite all of that, uh huh, this movie grossed more. Than every single David Lean film combined outside wow. of this one. Doctor Zhivago. Yeah, I mean it has a really you hear the same like the same Lara's theme throughout the thing, which is music played by Balalaika. Yeah. Um, my my mother had a music box when I was a kid that played that, and, I, and oh. the second I heard it, I was like, "That's that song from that music box." Wow. Um, 
that uh, this album, the soundtrack to this, sold over like six hundred thousand copies when it came out. Jiminy Jiminy! Yeah, I mean it was it was a big deal. This song. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that was so now I think we can kind of wrap up. I just wanted to get a few few interesting tidbits out there since we talk so much about such a slow, confusing plot. Very plotting. Very. Um, so oh, was, they took the, their time. What was the official coffee countdown on that? <laughs> like twelve minutes, I think. I remember. I don't know exactly when we pushed play, but I remember dozing off and then really quick checking my clock, and it was a uh, ten thirty two a.m. Yeah. Booyah! Hey now. Let's talk about 1979's Over the Edge. Yeah, this is a uh, also kind of a downer, but uh, kind of, but a peppy downer. But yeah, it was very a very different film. A very different film. Than the um, last one. You had never seen this, correct? I had never seen this movie, and I would not have recognized Matt Dillon. Wow, really? Yeah, I, I, he was so young in this. Alrighty, so I first saw this movie. I think probably somewhere back in like 98 ish, 99 ish, because mm-hmm. I remember um, the first time I saw it. Sort of thinking like, whoo, boy, glad I'm not uh, up to any of that nonsense anymore. Right. So Over the Edge is a movie, 1979. It stars a very young Matt Dillon and a young man named Michael Eric Kramer. Uh, Matt Dillon plays Richie White. Michael Eric Kramer plays a kid named Carl Willett. Uh, And let's see, they live in a brand new housing development called New Granada. Yeah, and I'm not sure if it's ever specified exactly which state New Granada is in. They imply New York, I think. Re- no, it couldn't be New York. Yeah, because they move. They move. Uh, um, Carl moves from New. His family's moved from New York, and then the girl moved from Chicago. And I think there was sort of a reference that maybe it was New York. But they're always talking about Las Vegas, Houston, Reno. Well, Houston. The Houston guys flew in right. from Texas. But I feel like it's got to be somewhere much further west because it's so just flat and like prairie like um i almost think maybe it's around like tahoe or something heck i don't know anyway new granada Mm -hmm. it's this very remote very you know levitt town kind of little boxes tiny boxes that song kind of place just a bunch of houses all built the same aggressive nothing around there's a school there's a convenience store there's the houses that's pretty much it. There's not a lot for these kids to do, and virtually every household in the town has at least one kid, right? Well, they tell you at the beginning of the film too that uh, it's based on some, it's inspired by some yes. true events, and that um, in 1978, there like, were yeah, you, you go ahead and say that. it was something like 110,000. There were 110,000 arrests made in America in 1978 for like juvenile vandalism. And like petty theft, petty kind of theft, probably drug use too. <clears throat> but basically, this is a story about kids who are taken to a place with n- where there's nothing to do, and then treated like animals because they get into trouble. Well, and that they are building this these townhouses and condos, right? Where more than half the population is under the age of fifteen, right? Right. So that, that tells you something about how out of touch the the adult community is here yes so here are all these adults uh in new granada all right so it starts with carl and richie um they're just chilling their mind in their own business and these two other kids mark and his buddy the gorilla i don't know if they ever give that kid a name <laughs> they mark and his friend are up on an overpass with a bb gun 
and they take aim on a cop car that's approaching on the road below them, and they shoot at the cop's face through the windshield. The windshield cracks. The car goes spinning out of control. Amazingly, nobody's hurt. But now the cops are on the lookout for this BB gun kid and his buddy. So those two go tearing through town on their bikes, and they pass Mike, uh, no, they pass Carl and Richie, and the kid with the gun, played by actor uh, Vincent Spano, in case you didn't recognize him. The kid's like, get out of here, man, the cops are right behind us, hide, hide. For no reason whatsoever, Richie and Carl decide they better hide from the police. Now, they're just walking along, minding their own business. They decide to hide from the police. They jump down behind like a circuitry box. Mm -hmm. The cop totally sees him, stops his car, gets out, arrests those two because Richie has a knife on him. So now Richie's in more trouble. He's been in trouble plenty of times in his life. Carl's maybe having like his first or second run-in with the law. I think it's safe to assume these kids are what, 15? Maybe 14? Right? Mm -hmm. I think 15. Yeah, well, I mean, they say that, uh, I think they, they mentioned that Carl is going to turn 15. Or is something like that. 15. Yeah, because he says, because then once you're 16, like, no more games. It's for yeah. real or something like that. Yeah. So these kids are 14-ish, 15-ish. Uh, and they're just bored suburban kids, right? Mm -hmm. So now they're bored suburban kids who've got an arrest record. Of course, Carl's parents aren't happy about it. Richie's mom, it's clear she's sort of probably some sort of ex-hippie-ish kind of lady. She's just like, man, these cops got nothing better to do than harass my kid. Now... Richie's a troublemaker. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about it. He's carrying a switchblade. He's constantly coming across fireworks. and He's been arrested for breaking and entering. He's been arrested for B&E. You know. So he's not exactly the best kid in town. Mm -hmm. And when they're under arrest, one of the cops says something to him about, like, ah, you better, you know, the law, blah, blah, blah. And Richie's like, I only live by one law, man. My law is any kid who tells on another kid is a dead kid. Yeah. And then the cop says, yeah, that's going to serve you real well in prison one day. And Richie's reply is? Yeah, it will. Right? Something like well, that. Well, damn straight. Oh, damn straight. So Richie's just... I don't know the movie the way you do. That's okay. Richie's just fully embraced a criminal lifestyle. Probably, he probably has no real idea what he's getting into. There's something really likable about him. Oh, right? absolutely. There's, there's something... Um, he's he, he is kind of a punk, and he does kind of like flip his finger at the law, but... Right. Um, but he's got all that feathery hair. Yeah, but yeah. He's got a he's got his name on the flag on his bike. I think part of it is the fact that initially they're arrested for no good reason. Right. You know that they're they're brought in for something that they didn't do. Right. They had nothing to do. And with... they're immediately treated as as the people that perpetrated it. Right. Right. Absolutely. The cops are just oh we're looking for two teens. There's two teens. They're under arrest. And, of course, they won't squeal on Mark, the kid who actually shot at the cop car. Right. So, gosh, what happens? We see a little bit of their school life the next day. Uh, the one kid takes some acid, drops some acid yeah, instead yeah. of speed. Yeah. Like uh, Carl and Richie have a good friend named Claude. Uh, Claude goes into their art class, and he talks about how, oh, man, I'm so ready for this test because I took some speed. And then... Minutes later, he's like, oh, I think that speed I took was actually acid, man. And then what's he say? He says, oh, I'm flashing, man. And then it keeps showing a very famous painting. I forget who it's by. 
Um, but it's a very famous, very trippy painting of like all these weird body parts and people with like bodies made of eggshells and there's people living inside. And it just keeps cutting to Claude's face just being all sweaty and disturbed like, by these images. and Almost like... Is is he seeing this painting or is right, he seeing right. something else? But like, I, I I thought it was really humorous because it was like almost like what if he wasn't actually on yeah acid? It, it, what if he thought he took acid, but he wasn't? Just because of how messed up the painting is. But then he saw that is. painting and was like, I'm definitely I'm, <laughs> yeah yeah. So poor Claude uh, has to deal with this trip. Then later, uh, maybe that night or a couple nights later. Oh, we should also point out. So we're introduced to Carl's dad. Uh, Mr. Willett Cadillac dealership owns a Cadillac dealership in town and he's in cahoots with this other guy named Mr. Cole Jerry Cole Jerry Cole who as far as I'm concerned as far as I know rather is not a parent Jerry Cole is just working together with Carl's dad to try to uh, lure these land developers in to buy the land across from the youth rec center and turn it into what more condos more condos so they uh, we at some point do learn that um, they started building condos and townhouses yeah. and homes, uh, and they ran out of money. Yeah, and so there's a whole bunch of unfinished homes there too. So they need they need the, these land people to come in and right. But do they? Because it seems like, frankly, this place has just enough homes for just enough people. Well, if they want, if they want to, if they want to grow, yeah, they need these people. But which is what they say they want to do. Yeah. But also, Carl laments, like, well, what are you talking about, Dad? Like, I thought they were going to build a movie theater yeah. or a, a drive-in theater and a bowling alley. Yeah, there. and there's a great moment. Something fun for kids and families to do. Yeah, when his, when his dad picks him up from the police station and they drive by the sign where the new townhomes are going to go. Right. They're covering up the sign saying that the fun stuff... The family stuff is going away. Right. They're, this stuff is coming. They're covering that up with these new signs. And uh, it's like the most telling like thing for the kids that um, nobody listens to them. Nobody cares right. about them. Right. Exactly. Their voices go unheard. You know, I remember growing up hearing a lot of the old adage, children are to be seen but never heard. Right. I don't think there's much of that going around these days, but I can remember hearing that a lot from like grandparents, friends, and that sort of thing. Right. For crying out loud. So here's these poor kids. They're 14 years old. It's 1979. There aren't even video games yet, man. Well, there might be like there's arcades some, yeah. somewhere. Not in New Granada. All yeah, they got is the convenience store, the rec center, and drugs. And the rec center is like ping pong tables, pool tables. Yeah. Football. Some sort of weird indoor basketball hoop. Yeah. Which doesn't make any sense. And an airplane out on the lawn for yeah, some reason. I, I don't know what that's about. A couple of, like, you know, things to climb around on outside. So now it's nighttime. I'm assuming it's a Friday night because the kids go to party at the rec center. Yeah. And Claude, kid who just barely made it out of that acid trip, buys some hash from a dude named Tip. Tip. Tip is a sinister platinum blonde haired, looked like he was probably on the Dogtown and Z Boy skate team. Tip sells Claude some hashish. And and was the one who sold him the acid. And he was the one who sold him the acid. Yep. Now he's selling him some hashish for like 12 bucks a gram, man. Claude thinks it's too steep, but he buys it anyway. Everybody's chilling, having fun at the party, drinking, getting well, they, to know each other. I'm oh, I'm there. sorry. You're, yeah. you're getting to the other party. Suddenly, Richie shows up out of nowhere, and he's like, yo, I just heard about a better party. Let's go. But... 
the reason that that Carl, the real reason Carl went to the rec center in the first place, yeah, was he was looking for something for Corey. He was looking for Corey. She's the real fox. Yeah. So Corey's this uh, red-haired girl that uh, Carl's got the hots for, and they imply has maybe been with a few boys. Right. We see her smoking out of a car window at, at some point. Yeah, while her dad's driving her yeah. around. Ugh. So. Richie hears about the better party. They go to the better party. Now, this party is clearly in some sort of, like, even deeper suburban part of town. Because a lot of these places are, like, condos. They're kind of houses all built together. Mm-hmm. This was this kid's house is, like, its own standalone house sure. in a pretty spaced, you know, far apart kind of neighborhood. Richie and Carl and Claude and Claude's little brother, they all go in. They start partying. They're passing around Jays, this, that, and the other thing. Carl finds Corey making out with Mark. Yeah. The kid who first shot the cop car that set all these damn... That got them arrested. Yeah, that got them arrested. Mark spots Carl and he's like, yo, man, give me a hit of that joint. Carl's like, hey, you got me in a lot of real trouble the other day. And Mark says like, he literally says something like, it doesn't matter, man, as long as you didn't mention my name to the cops. Yeah. So even Mark, a fellow kid, is just like, whatever... Whatever I can get out of anybody, I'm going to take it. Yeah. And then he says, like, because if you ever mention my name to the cops, like, I'll, you know, put you in the hospital or whatever. Make some sort of skinny ne'er-do-well threat that he he couldn't possibly back up. Sure. Cops show up. The party's busted. The kids all scatter in every direction. What happens next? Carl walks home alone. Carl walks home alone, and Mark... And his big gorilla friend jump him in front of the rec center. Beat the crap they out of him. Beat his face so bad. And this is where there's uh, this is where kind of the main score of the movie comes in. Mm-hmm. And for my money, it sounded very sort of Italian. And I thought it was supposed to kind of be some sort of like, oh, well, this is what they the kind of stuff they play in the mobster movies. Let's play a little bit of this here. But then you hear it with various instrumentation as the movie goes along. So Mark and his gorilla buddy are just beating up Carl like crazy, beating him up. Carl goes home. And when he gets home, his dad is meeting with Jerry Cole in the living room. Yeah. Carl comes in with his face all bloody and bruised up. So now Jerry Cole and his dad are like, oh, no, the kids are going to make our town look bad, man. It's it's that rec center. It's that damn rec center. Yeah, that damn rec center that's giving these kids something to do. That's the problem, right? So Jerry Cole decides, I'm going to let the police chief know to close down the rec center for when the Houston guys come in to take a look at the land and hopefully save our butts. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? Mission failed because the next day at the rec center, the cops go to close it down and instead they wind up causing a huge scene, arresting Claude because they find the hashish on him. And right as they're arresting Claude, dragging him out with all the kids yelling and throwing stuff at him and whatnot, that's when the guys from Houston are brought on by. In the in the new Cadillacs that uh, that Carl's dad lent out, and Richie's up on top of the yeah. Cop Richie's car. standing on top of the cop car, making a scene. The cops are making the scene, frankly. So it's like these fools. If they had just been like, you know what, let's let the kids stay at the rec center for the day. That's something to do. They could have avoided all this hassle. I thought for sure when so they go into arrest Claude and everybody's like giving him a hard time. Yeah, Richie sneaks out. I thought for sure Richie was going to steal the cop car. That would have been fun. Yeah, but alas, he did not. He did not. Somebody steals a cop car later in the movie. Yes. But it's a cop stealing yes. another department's yes. car. Yeah. For crying out loud. So. They arrest Claude. They arrest Claude. Richie and Carl go out farting around. I think this is where they acquire some firecrackers. 
Yeah, uh, he gives Richie gives Carl the firecracker. Yeah, and he's like, like give him the claw, he yeah. can smoke him. And then they bump into Corey and her very tall friend, whose name I don't think we ever learn. Yeah, I don't know. And they have just come out of robbing somebody's house, and they've stolen a revolver. Yes. A handgun. Two teenage girls stealing a handgun, right? Mm-hmm. Richie's like, whoa, you better let me hang on to that. I know a guy who can get you 150 bucks for this gun, man. They go and hang out in this house that's not finished being built yet. Uh, Richie and Carl call it their condo. And they're basically like, check out how cool we are, man. This is our little... Got boombox. Our little hang... Yeah, you know, we can hang out here. We got a boombox here. And now we can play with this gun. And the girls are like, well, we got some shells, too. Oh, wait. Oh, even more fun than that. Stupid Corey is dancing around playing air guitar with the gun. There's a lot of hey watch me air guitar going on in this movie. Right. It's very strange. These kids love to show off how good they are at air guitar. Corey's dancing around with the gun and she literally starts pointing it at Carl's face from a few feet away and just kind of dancing with it and then fires a bullet. Yeah, and Carl falls down. At his face and Carl falls down and plays dead and everybody's like, "Whoa!" Somehow he did not get hit, mm-hmm. and he barely cares that he just got shot at either. Mm-hmm. So they take off for the night. They they're decide like, they're going to meet up another day and uh, fire, like do like a firing range kind of thing. Yeah, they say we stole some shells too, so let's meet up and shoot this thing out in a field somewhere. Claude's been let out of jail. Carl gets him on the phone. They're all going to go shoot the place up, right? Well, there is something that happens before that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. With the, the fire, With the firecrackers. Yep. You're correct. So Richie goes home after nearly, or Carl goes home after nearly being shot, sees the place where the dudes from Texas are staying, borrowing one of his dad's Cadillacs, see them getting out of their car, heading into the house for the night. Uh, what is it? Jerry Cole and probably his dad are driving away in the other Cadillac. Mm-hmm. The music gets to this huge dangerous crescendo and it's like something's about to happen yeah next morning texas guys come out start the car and all these fireworks blast off under the hood yeah carl has loaded the fireworks into the car they're all popping off under the hood the car's probably being destroyed right from within and then it cuts to jerry cole on the scene the texas guys are leaving in a taxi cab and uh what's his name sloan who's sort of the the shot caller for the texas group he says you people were in such a hurry to leave the city that you turned your kids into exactly what you're trying to get away from. That was like the most poignant thing in the whole film. Exactly. Because even Sloan, this rich guy from Texas who's here to you know do business, even he realizes these poor kids are being treated like dirt. Yeah. And because these people are treating them like dirt and can't keep them in control, I can't do business with these jagaloons. Yeah. Gosh, so then where does it go? So then the kids go, they shoot the gun, and it is discussed that Claude must have gotten busted because somebody tipped off the police. Yes. Who better to tip off the police? Than Tip. Than Tip. Uh, But before they go deal with Tip, they all fire the gun, and everybody misses except for Carl. Except Carl. It's not a huge thing, but it is slightly important. Yeah, well, he does take another pretty good shot later in the movie. Yeah, and that's why, yeah. So they go visit Tip. They're like, yo, man, you told on Claude, you're a rat, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, with his mother being able to see from a distant tennis court, they point the gun in Tip's face, and then they throw him over the edge of a 
a deck, I guess you could yeah, say. Not quite a balcony. Yeah. And Tip he, can't swim. Apparently he can't swim. Did he, did he, he say that. he can't swim? He says, oh, no, okay. I can't swim. And then they, tip, they throw him over. They tip him I over. I feel like anybody who's about to be thrown into the water should yell, I can't swim, just to see if maybe yeah. the other guys will have sympathy for it. But yeah, so they dump him over this railing. He falls maybe six feet into the water. Yeah. Not a big deal. It's a man-made lake. He's probably fine. But his mom's like, oh, I'll see you in jail. Yeah. The kids all run off with more stolen goods because they went into Tip's house and stole a bunch of stuff. Next day at school, Richie's in science class. For some reason, there are windows looking into the science class. Or no, Carl's in science class. Mm-hmm. Carl manages to hear Tip's mom and what I'm guessing is the school principal looking through the windows of the class and asking are these the kids that threw your son over the uh, over the deck and put a gun in his face? Carl manages to hear that. They don't see him. He runs away, gets Richie. He's like, Richie, we got a bell, dude. They go running out of the school just before the cops pull up. They manage to literally like hide behind a building as the cops are going around to park in front of it. Cops park. Kids keep running. They go to Richie's house. Richie steals his mom's car keys, and he gets... The gun. Yep. The revolver. They go on the run in Richie's mom's Ford. You have something to say. No, I was just going to just add, they're, they're going to sell the gun. They're going to sell the gun. And they're going to run away. And they're going to run away to wherever, man, any direction. Carl puts on some Jimi Hendrix music, <clears throat> some Jimi Hendrix music, and proceeds to show Richie how good his air guitar is mm-hmm. while Richie's driving away in his mom's Ford. Sure enough. A cop gets behind sheriff him. Doberman. Sheriff Doberman. Sergeant Doberman. Sorry, Sergeant Doberman. I'm not sure if he's a sheriff or just a mm. police. There's all that county township stuff yeah, going on. Sure. Sergeant Doberman is behind them. Richie's like, man, I can burn him, dude. He goes, does some off-roading, winds up flipping the Jeep. Mm-hmm. They get out. Richie says, run in opposite directions. You can't chase us both. He's, who's he going to chase? He's going to chase Richie. Richie. Richie, the dummy. The 14-year-old dum-dum with an unloaded gun on him turns, points it at Doberman, and Doberman... Fuck you, pig, or something like that. I think he does say that. Yeah. Something close to that. Doberman shoots him dead. Yep. Carl just continues running, because at worst, he's... Doberman might kill him. Mm -hmm. At best, he gets arrested and charged and sent to jail. So Carl's on the run. He goes and hides out in the, the unfinished condo. condo. Corey comes to see him. She brings him a sleeping bag. And they get it on. I'm assuming they get it on. At the very least, they probably kiss and his fall asleep together. His shirt's off the next morning and his pants are undone. Oh, you're right. So they have some some stuff. At least some frisky fun. They have some kind of frisky fun in that sleeping bag. Also, what was weird about the condo was there was a, a copy of a painting tacked up on one of the two-by-fours. Mm. And it looked like something by uh, the guy, the movie The Girl with the Pearl Earring. Mm-hmm. What was that artist's name? Uh, it, lo- it looked like something he would have done. And I'm like, why would that be hanging in a 14-year-old kid's clubhouse, essentially? I thought that was funny. Anyway, so Carl's like, yeah, man, I don't know exactly what I'm going to do, but you know, thanks for bringing me this sleeping bag. And, you know, you're not in trouble. Get back to town. Uh, you know, maybe I'll come looking for you. Carl goes sneaking back into town. He sneaks into his house while his mom's home. His mom's on the phone with dad. Have you seen him yet? Yeah, he's trying to find money. And he needs a fresh shirt. Um, So he he can hear that his parents are on the phone. So then he picks up the extra phone and he's like, Ah, you jerks. 
I'm still mad, and, you know, that pig killed Richie and what have you. You're never going to catch me. Hangs up, sneaks out the window. His mom never catches him. All the parents are called to a big meeting at the school. PTA meeting. A PTA meeting at the school. Jerry Cole is, for some reason, in charge of this meeting, even though he ain't no dad. Officer Doberman's there. The cops pull up, and you distinctly hear Doberman say to one of his other uh, officers, he says, leave your guns in the car. Like, what do you think this is? And so now we know all the cops have left all their guns in the car. Whee! They go in. They're having the meeting, talking about how, you know, it's your kid's fault. And if it's your kid's fault, that means it's your fault because you're not disciplining these kids. Blah, blah, blah. And Jerry's pointing the finger at the kids and the parents, and Doberman's pointing the finger at the kids. Well, and Jerry's like, and we're never going to get the property levels to rate to rise. Yes, yeah, yeah. He's going on about resale values yeah. and property uh, 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 value and this and that. And so then Carl's dad, who's been a pretty hard guy on Carl. Yeah. I mean, he slapped him once. He's, you know, they had that big argument before the slap. Telling him he can't hang out with his friends. Yeah, he's like, you can't hang out with Richie anymore. And then, oh man, I wish I could remember Carl's line that pisses his dad off so much. But it's beautiful. And he literally, he just like says this line that just throws it right back in his dad's face. And his dad just goes, oh shit. Like that. Like he's just like, he knows the kid's right. But he wishes to God he had anything to trump that. And he just doesn't. So he slaps Carl in the face. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. Now we're caught up. The PTA meeting's going on, and all the kids converge at the rec center, and we decide, they decide, they're going to work together and just go to the school and do something. And this is sort of um, brought on by the um, new friendship between Carl and the... Oh, yes. The the, the BB gun kid. Mark. Mark. So when Carl's sort of on the run, he encounters Mark. Mark is living in a tent, like... Like by Down a by the swamp. river you know, kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah, like just by a mucky like And he's out riding tide pool. Yeah, almost. he's riding a dirt bike and, and uh and Carl picks up the BB gun and right. and and nails him with the BB gun and shoots him like, in the okay, chest. Mid jump. He's like, We're even now. Yeah. Um and he compliments his marksmanship and all that. Um and so when they go to the rec center and they come up with this plan, it's it's kind of like half Mark, half Carl. Like Mark shows up, Carl's got his arm around the girl that Mark was making out with her right. in the film, and you think maybe they're not going to be friends after all. And then he like they do their little like bro shake. Well, Mark literally salutes, salutes him, him and says like you know, and he puts his hand reporting up for, for duty or something like that. Yeah, and he's like, Mark's like, you know what? If they're all going to be in one place, this yeah. is the perfect opportunity to nail them all. And then Carl sort of gets this idea. And then when they get there, them. Mark says, "All it would take is one stick of dynamite, man." Yep, <laughs> which is terrifying. Yep. I don't know. I, you know, I've had some disagreements with my parents. I've never wanted to throw a stick of dynamite into a room they were in. So the the kids go to the school, yeah, to cause some terror, and he and he makes that comment. And I want to point out, um, so the movie is based. Yeah, they don't say where it takes place. The movie is based on a town in a true story in near San Francisco. Oh, okay. Um, I would have never expected it was shot in Colorado. Oh, it Next, was. Yep, the town it was shot in Colorado is next. There was a developing town. Yeah. And the uh, the sister town that was being developed right next to it was Columbine. No way. Yeah. Weird. So, yeah, so it's kind of interesting that, the, that that Mark's like, all it would take is just one stick of dynamite. And this movie was 79. 
Yeah. Columbine was 99. Yeah. Holy shnikes. It's crazy, right? That's really crazy. Yeah. I, ugh, I never knew that piece of information, and now I'm not exactly happy that I do. The kids, Carl, sneaks up onto the roof of the school, uh, knocks open like some sort of weird skylight, sneaks down into the school and starts scouting around, and he figures out he can lock all these adults in with just a couple of bike chains mm-hmm. by pulling these hallway gates closed. I went to a school with hallway gates. Did sure. your school have hallway gates? Uh, I think they just had doors. It was so weird. Yeah. Such a weird thing. Like, why is it after 7 o'clock I can't take this shortcut through the hall? Yeah. Also, what am I doing in the hall after 7 p.m.? Sure. Anyway. So, yeah. So, he pulls these gates closed, chains them up with bike locks, and then other kids start sneaking into the school. They chain the doors that would let the adults escape to the parking lot, chain those shut. Mm-hmm. And uh, all, the to- all the while they're doing this, they're sneaking around and doing this, and Officer Doberman's on the stage at the PTA meeting just blaming everybody for everything. Talking about how it's even Jerry Cole's fault for, you know, calling this meeting here and blah, 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 and this and that. And uh, the girl from the rec center stands up, who's getting fired. Yeah, the girl who's getting up. fired from the rec center stands up and she's saying, like, you know. Was the gun, was his gun loaded? Right. You killed a kid with an unloaded gun? Yeah. And of course, Doberman's like, how was I supposed to know? He probably didn't even know it was yeah. unloaded. You know, all that sort of thing. And uh, so the, now the kids are sneaking into the school. They're raising hell. They start smashing up the cars. They start blowing up the cars yeah, out in the parking lot. They reveal themselves to the, the, the people in the meeting. Yeah, because Doberman sees Mark running away from the door after just chaining it up. Yeah. He doesn't see him chaining it up the whole time. I don't think it was Mark. I think it was Claude. I think Mark chains was up that the one door Claude? and then Claude comes up and flips him off. Huh. I thought the flip-off came off I, I could be wrong. After... But- I think it was he noticed Mark running away from chaining the door, and then Claude, Claude and them showed up at the other door. Flip off. Oh, maybe it's possible. Something like that. Yeah. The so anyways, kids are raising hell. I mean, they're they're burning cars, including the uh, Jerry's fancy antique car. Right. Jerry has that really nice old Cadillac. Incredible. They set that on fire. They they bust open the cop car and get all the guns, guns out. Freaking Mark. Yeah, Mark's riding around on his BMX. With a shotgun pointed over and just riding at other kids and just pulling the trigger and hoping they get out of the way in time. Corey dives out of the way, but she does also gets caught in a little bit of, a, of an explosion of some debris that right. at the same time. Because he shoots a car in the trunk and it just blows up completely, yeah. which is strange. Seems unrealistic. Then, thank God... Uh, What's her name? The lady who runs the rec center. Mm-hmm. She's just out in the hallway chilling while all the rest of the adults are inside just going freaking crazy, out. freaking out, pointing fingers, blaming everybody. And she spots little Johnny on his skateboard skating through the hall. Johnny never says a word through the whole movie. And she says, Johnny, come here. And Johnny likes her. She's the nice lady from the rec center. She asks Johnny to bring her a phone from a nearby office. He pulls it over as far as he can. He can't get it to the gate. She says, can you just dial zero for me? He does. More cops and, and fire department. And he skates off. He's skates like, off. Okay. Yeah, he's Johnny. He does it, helps her out, gets out of there. She calls operator, fire department, what have you. They all start showing up. They bust the adults free. But, of course, by now all the kids have totally scattered. Yeah. They're running off wild in the streets. There, there's another moment, too, that I want to point out that I yes. really liked. When all the chaos is going on, Yeah. Um, Carl sees Richie. Or That's right. Richie. He sees a kid riding away on Richie's bike. Yeah, because Richie's was, bike had been left at the school. And the kid didn't look like Richie to me. No, not but really. He was on Richie's bike. 
But I, I was reading that Matt Dillon is in that scene. Oh, really? Yeah, so I was kind of like, maybe it's Matt Dillon at first. That's and then, funny. And then maybe they change it to another kid when they cut back to him again. But uh, um, but I don't know. But apparently Matt Dillon's in that scene because he didn't want to be left out of all the craziness sure. and the fun. I wouldn't either. So they, they let him be in that scene. Um, That's funny but, you say that. So he sees this kid on Richie's bike, and he goes and chases after him. And it's almost as if seeing Richie's bike and Richie's name and the kid that looks kind of like Richie kind of snaps him out of this. Yeah. It's like he's done with this now. Right. He They made the point. He remembers his friend who died for something really stupid and he gets kind of snapped out of it. And he kind of comes back and walks around and observes what's going on, but he doesn't participate in very much of this. Yeah. And some even other kids even offer him something like, yeah. wait, we got this stolen whatever, man. Yeah. And he's just like, nah, I've had enough. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, I'm glad you noticed that because I remember seeing one kid in the riot scene and thinking, that really looks like Matt Dillon, but like they yeah. barely showed his face. Yeah. And then his hair, his hair was combed very differently. So the kids all scatter. Kids all scatter. The, the fire department breaks the adults out. Doberman steals a different cop's car from, uh, they were probably state police or yeah. county sheriff or whatever. And he goes tearing through the night. Specifically, trying to get Carl, and he does catches up to him. He's like, "Carl, will it? Like, if you don't stop running right now, you know, I'm gonna. What's he say? He's like, I'm gonna tag you or something. He's like, I'm gonna get you like I got Richie or something. Or he says, like that. he says, uh, don't end up like your friend Richie. Yeah, don't end up like your friend Richie. Carl stops. Like Doberman arrests him, handcuffs him in the back of the car, handcuffs to, to him the car. to the car. So Carl's got one hand hanging up, handcuffed, tied to the to the security gate inside the car. Driving away, I don't know if you could call it saving the day, but stupid Mark with his shotgun is aiming up as the cop car approaches. His big gorilla friend flips the car off. Doberman sees that. Mark shoots. It looked like he hit the headlights. He hits the headlight. The car crashes into the rec center. And it and hits a propane tank. Hits a propane, propane tank. I'm not sure why there's a propane tank that close to the rec center. It seems like a bad idea. But the car wings the propane tank, crashes into the rec center. Thankfully, it's empty. And the whole place goes up. Doberman's dead behind the wheel. But he's not dead. He's definitely unconscious. Sure, he's unconscious. I think it's safe to assume he dies. I mean, he, he definitely hit his head on the windshield. Yeah, he's bleeding from the forehead. Uh, Mark, no, Carl manages to get his keys free himself and go running out of there before the whole place explodes even more. Now he's definitely dead. Now Doberman's dead. And then, uh, then what? Doesn't it just cut to like the next morning? The next day and they're, and they're, they're bringing the kids out. Some yeah. Of the kids out of the, it's the civic center. Right. Um, and basically all of the kids have been arrested. Yeah. Pretty well, much. It's a short bus full of kids. Yeah. They're all in a bus. I would say it's probably short. The tall girls in there. The tall girls in there. Bunch of kids. A whole bunch of kids. Mark's in there. His gorilla buddy's in there. Yeah. They're being driven away to the hill, which is where the uh, juvenile detention center is. Yeah. They go under an overpass, and there's only three kids up there to see him off, and it's Corey, Claude, and his little brother. Somehow, those three weren't arrested. Pretty much every other kid in town seems to be on their way to jail. Well, we know that we know why they weren't arrested, right? Because we know they left ahead of everybody else. Because that's true. Corey is on the ground, and she's like, "Sorry, the sun." Um, she says, "The um, what, do you know where Carl is?" She asks Claude, "Do you know where Carl is?" I, I just want to go home. Yeah, and she's definitely been hurt. She's bleeding, 
and Claude goes, "Come with me, I'll get you home." Okay. And it would it would be safe to assume that his little brother would be with would go with him. Yeah. So they left ahead of all the other kids, which is why they wouldn't have gotten arrested. All right, that makes good sense. Um, and I like to think that the overpass that they're on is the same overpass that started the film. I would have to say so. I can't imagine where there would be another overpass in yeah, that flat hellhole. And then uh, it cuts back to the kids on the bus, and Carl is looking out the back window, and he sees that the girl he likes is waving him goodbye as he heads toward jail. And you know in his head... And he seems pretty happy about it. In his head, she's going, I'll wait for you. Yeah. And then uh, the five stair steps. Well, no, a cover of... Uh, What's it called? Ooh Child of yeah, the Ooh Child by the Five Stair Steps. A cover starts playing. It's supposed to be Baba O'Reilly, but they couldn't get the rights. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow, Baba O'Reilly by the Who. Yeah. That's another thing we got to point out. There's tons of good rock and roll on the soundtrack for this yeah. movie. A couple Van Halen songs, at least one Ramones song. Surrender too much, though. Really? I feel like they played Surrender two or three times in that film. I felt like Surrender only came on once. No, definitely twice, because it, it definitely comes on. The, the first time is when... Carl's listening to it on his headphones. Yeah. The second time is when they're in the condo and she's dancing. She's dancing to surrender. Oh, that's right. Okay. I think I'm so worried about the gun in that scene that I forget what song is being played. Yeah. Um, but that's it. Carl and most of the kids get sent to jail. And uh, I imagine his dad's auto dealership does pretty well after they destroyed darn yeah. near every town ta- uh, car in town. Yeah. All those all those station wagons that aren't Cadillacs. Yeah. So hopefully everybody there is going to go buy from Carl's dad. So I looked up um, some some tidbits, some fun tidbits. Let me hear them. Here, uh, hold on one second. I'm going to fix it so you're not being blinded for yeah. the next couple minutes. Okay, I will vamp while you fix that. Vamp away. Um, dear Lord in heaven, is this our longest episode ever? I don't think so. Dear Viewsters, if you're listening, Thank you. uh, tweet at us and let us know how much you enjoyed uh, Dr. Zhivago. And over the edge. So, uh, give us a let us know. So, a couple things. Um, apparently, this film was a major inspiration for um, Nirvana and Smells oh, Like really? Teen Spirit. Yeah, apparently, uh, Kurt Cobain said that it pretty much defined his whole youth. Wow. Film. All right. Yeah, and Matt Dillon. This is his first movie. That makes sense. He didn't even want to audition for the movie. Wow, really? He um, he uh, he just wanted to skip school that day. <laughs> so auditioned for it and got the part. So he literally got the role by Richie Whiting his way into it. Yeah, exactly. Wow, um, that's that's pretty much. I, I said everything else. I think um, I know during that, the yeah, during I know the that there's a, a pretty cool video. I think it's by maybe the Screaming Trees. Yeah. Where basically they recreate the whole riot scene, but I think they do it in daylight. Yeah, uh, yeah, and they, uh, you know, for one of their songs. If you know the name of that Screaming Trees song, please tweet it at me at Steve and No Hoewood. Send me the YouTube link. I want to watch that video. Steve, let's let's move this on so we can draw these. Uh, yes, let's next next movies. Okay, so we're gonna have one more podcast in September, and then we're yes. gonna be doing a special thing for October. Do we want to say what that is now? Sure. So in October, we're going to do both of our podcasts. All the films will be horror films for the month of October for Halloween. So I'm pretty excited. Did you draw Dune? I don't know what I got. All right. What you got? That's the one. Hang on. Let me go under. Use the other arm. Use the other arm. Thank you. We're sitting pretty far away. We like to sit on opposite end of the ends of the room. What you got? Double indemnity. Double indemnity. Going with the old ones again. Look, I don't get to choose. All right. 
Whew, another old one. All About Eve. Oh, Double Indemnity and All About Eve That's for next time, viewsters. So we'll, we'll do those two classics, and then and then we'll go into horror. So um, we've got a brand new bucket just for the horror films. Yeah. Uh, a bunch of movies. Uh, I, unfortunately, I've seen most of them, but Steve hasn't seen any of the ones that are going in there. I think there's one that we haven't both seen. but uh, I think we should have to watch that one. Which Well, let's see what happens. Okay. All right. Uh, so thank you very much for yes, listening to you. another episode. Thank happy you. Labor Day. Thank you. Yeah, happy Labor Day. It's Labor Day today when we're recording this. Um, thank you for all the Facebook likes and the love on Twitter. Um, please hit us up, Steve at NoHo Wood. Yes, please. Uh, Movie Hippo and No Lag Gamers. And um, we will see you in a couple weeks. Bon yeah. Cinema. Ooh.